So mm-hmm. picture a world of connected data where every individual only has access to what they have access to as determined by the owner of that and the ability to build experiences on top of that uh, wow. where those experiences can be freely shared but without releasing the data. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for tuning in. You're listening to Dedicated On Air, where we bring together data experts to share their journey and impart their knowledge. This is Kate Strashny, the founder of Dedicated and the host of Dedicated On Air. I'm going to go ahead and bring up our special guest here, Dan Demers. Hello. Welcome to the Dedicated Show. Hey, happy to be here. Awesome. Awesome. And where are you tuning in from? Uh, from Toronto. Toronto. That You know, that was the last place I visited before the pandemic. I think oh, it was okay. a month or two, right before everything started. It was, um, mm-hmm. and I actually think that's where, where you and I first met. That was, uh, there was a data, big data conference in Toronto. That's right. Tucci, yes, I remember. you had a booth. Yep. Yes. That was, that's where we met. Just a quick reminder, as you're joining, the question of the day is, are you familiar with Dataware? If you're not, you're definitely going to be familiar with it after this session. All right. So, Dan, for those who don't yet know you, let's start with that. Can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. So uh, I kind of have two hats these days. I'm the CEO and co-founder at a company called Cinchi, which is headquartered out of Toronto, although we're hiring all over the world uh, these days. Uh, And I'm also the president of the Data Collaboration Alliance, which is a not-for-profit uh, that was bootstrapped by Cinchi, uh, but with the goal of engaging other vendors and, and privacy experts on the creation of new standards, uh, including the zero-copy integration standard. My background prior to founding Cinchi is I used to work in financial services, worked at uh, some of the biggest banks in the world, always in IT, uh, building uh, pretty complicated systems uh, in different business lines within financial services. And that's where I met my co-founder, Karim, and uh, saw firsthand how complicated it is to build and maintain and support uh, enterprise systems in a complex organization. And I was surprised uh, that over half of the IT capacity was just spent doing integration, essentially moving data from your left pocket to your right pocket, to your back pocket, to, to your coat pocket, <laughs> and then back to your left pocket again, but it, it doesn't look the same anymore. And uh, noticed that that was getting worse as more and more applications started to surface. Right. Yeah. And sometimes in your purse, right? For those who don't have pockets. So, for sure. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> all right. Thank you so much for, for providing that background. So question that we'll start with, I guess, is, what is Dataware? Yeah, so it's actually a concept that goes all the way back to, I think the first reference was 1986. It was a professor in the U.S. named Gordon Everest. And he wrote a book on database concepts and design. And one of the chapters was fascinating because it talked about a future prediction where data becomes independent of the applications. Whereas today, uh, and up until that point, and still largely true today, Uh, Data exists because it's created by an application, and then separately it's shared across applications. So the idea of hardware, then software, and now dataware, where dataware is of equal status, uh, that was the first reference to that. But it's really centered around uh, a number of aspects, but the way I like to think of it is it's the humanization of data. Uh, Because today, uh, when you're using applications, the 
applications provide a simulation of a data experience, uh, but they're limited by the application code. You're not actually interacting with the data directly. The, you're interacting with the application experience, which could be a report, it could be a GUI, it could be a mobile app. Uh, and then that is implemented often with code or configuration, which then in turn interacts with the data. So you're disconnected from the data. The app in many ways becomes a barrier that separates you from the data. And I'd love to get into this a bit more. So what's wrong with this approach? Uh, well, there's a, a number of problems with it. Uh, the the first is that uh, you're ultimately limited in, in your ability to interact with that data because if, if the experience that you're using doesn't have a code path for what you're trying to accomplish, you're kind of just out of luck. Uh, so a simple example, let's take... Um, my ability to interact with my uh, email via, let's say I'm using Gmail or something. Uh, I'm limited by my email client in terms of what I can do. Uh, I, maybe I want to send an email to all of my contacts who are uh, also in my CRM, who are uh, located in the country of Canada. And uh, I want to, where we've had uh, past deals. I can't, I can't do that because there's no code path for that. There's no experience for that. Uh, and not only that, the application is limited because it contains only a silo of data. It doesn't have access to all the data that I have access to through other applications. So that, that's the problem from an end user perspective is every interface is both limited in terms of functionality and limited in terms of data. There's, there's no universal interface. There's the other side of it, which is for the people who are building and supporting these systems at the other end, the fact that the data is contained inside of individual applications means you have to do this thing called integration. People want integrated systems, but they don't want to do integration because it's ex incredibly expensive. APIs, ETLs, doing reconciliations. This is this is half of the work of, of IT all over the world. Yeah, thanks for that. And I think it'd also be helpful to define the term, what is data integration with Compass? I see. Right. Uh, so there's hundreds, maybe even thousands of different ways that you can accomplish it. But it's essentially when uh, you have uh, an application that needs to access data that is managed by another application, and you need to enable that access. And you can do that through doing things like uh, ETL or ELT or building APIs, or there's, you know, even API is a broad concept uh, that has, you know, you can have REST endpoints that are exchanging over JSON. There's lots of different protocols, lots of different formats, but they all require effort. None of them are effortless. And most of them, if not all of them, ultimately result in data being copied uh, across application boundaries. And as soon as you copy data, you lose control over that data. Right. Yes, yes, absolutely. Now, you mentioned that copying leads to issues because you might lose control of that data. And I, every yeah. time I hear of Cinchi, I, I think of a term called zero copy integration. So yeah. let's talk about that. What does that actually mean? Yeah, well, just imagine if the world was such that you could copy money. Just imagine what would okay. uh, what would be your <laughs> net worth if, if you could just print money and copy it. So why why is it illegal to copy money? Uh, why is there controls built into physical currency? And uh, why why does that control exist? Well, it's because it has value. Yeah. Uh, well, if data has value, but you can copy it, doesn't a copy devalue it? Uh, and not only that, if I give you a copy of my data, how do I limit what you're able to then do with that copy? Maybe you can make another copy and send it to somebody else and so on and so forth. So I may sign up to uh, an application and give it my personal data and authorize that application, but I really don't have any control over that. You know, it's, I may agree to some terms and there's, you know, there's, there's a legal structure in place, but it's not a, a technical control. I cannot stop 
that, that data from being hacked, that data from mm -hmm. being just sh openly shared, from being leaked. I, I can't stop. I don't know who can see it. I can't ever change my mind and take that data back. Even if I request it, was it, you know, if I exercise my right to be forgotten, was it actually exercised? Like, how, who knows? Right. Uh, because it's copied. And that's the problem. And uh, uh, that creates all kinds of consequences for the, for the world, uh, in addition to the fact that it's just incredibly inefficient and makes mm -hmm. it very hard to build systems <laughs> as a result of that. So zero copy integration is really a different way of building systems that the apps are separate from the data such that the data can be collaborated on across applications without needing to be copied. So it's a very simple idea. Uh, but there's so many examples of that in the world. Even just look at the World Wide Web. When one website has a hyperlink to another website, it's pointing to that website. It's not right. got any copy of that site. It just links to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's a it's a network of links, uh, and that's how data actually should work. And that's not how it works uh, in traditional copy-based integration approaches. So. That's really what we're talking about is, is uh, creating standards that change how you build digital systems that enable data to be treated as if it actually has value. I, I think that's very, very eye-opening. The way the, those two examples that you just provided, one was the treating data not only as an asset, but treating it as currency, right? So mm -hmm. you're not devaluing it by copying it um, or having people manipulate it and mess with it and um, lose its reliability and integrity. And the other example for the website, I think it just logically makes sense, right? Why haven't we been doing this all along? Yeah, and, and there's, there's good reasons. If you just think of the, the history of, you know, the digitization of, of data and, and uh, information, it had to be this way in terms of, uh, you know, we had hardware and then we invented software. So hardware existed before software. So if you think of uh, the invention of software, go back to like 1938 and imagine you're witnessing the first ever real running software that demonstrates that it's, you know, not some science fiction, it's real. You can actually alter the behavior of a physical machine without altering the physical machine. You can provide instructions that can change what the machine does. That's, whoa, that's, that's like black magic. That, that, there's no way that's possible. You just take it for granted. And well, today you just open up an iPhone, you open up an app and a virtual keyboard pops up. You don't think anything of it. But to the citizens of 1937 and 1938, that would have been impossible. <laughs> the idea of, of dataware is similar in that it just makes sense once you see it, once you experience it, once you touch it. Um, but it doesn't make sense until you see it and touch it <laughs> and understand it. It's impossible. There's no way. So like, why is data trapped inside of these applications? It's not because people are dumb or stupid or, or making a bunch of mistakes. It's, it, it is necessary because when software was first created, it had to remember information, right? So you can provide the instructions, but if it yeah. had no memory, you provide instructions and, and then it forgets what it did. <laughs> it, right. it can't remember. So that's not going to be very powerful, right? So for software to go to the next level, it had to have a memory. Well, that means it needed to store information somewhere. So the origins of the digitization of data were to serve as the memory for your program. That's where it started. Uh, right. And then uh, uh, we were so caught up on the fact that we can now build digital solutions to replace or augment, you know, manual paper-based processes that we weren't even even aware or thinking that we were making silos and copying data and whatnot. As soon as we build application number two that needs to interact with application number one, we're going to do integration. Okay, great. We'll just send copies of data. No problem. Right. Uh, and then we started to wake up to realize that, wait a minute, this, this information that these applications are storing 
actually has some value beyond just acting as the memory. What if you could query that? You can actually get intelligence from that. So you could reuse the memory of the applications and turn that into things like predictions and all this cool stuff. And that's where we started to get really focused on, okay, well, wait, wait a minute, the data is siloed. So to benefit from that, we need it to be uh, somehow connected. So let's let's create a data warehouse. Uh, let's create you know top down, bottom up. Let's let's look at uh, data marts. Let's look at uh, data lakes and uh, lake houses and you know all these different strategies to enable an access point that gives you the ability to look at data as if it were all connected and not fragmented. Right. Uh, and um, so we were so focused on enabling analytics uh, without actually changing the paradigm of how the applications are managing data. And that's really what DataWare is doing is it's it's not just looking at it from an analytical perspective. It's looking at it from how we build applications. Yeah. And th- thank you for that. One question I'll ask um, that I think is really important. If you can tell us the difference between data lake, data mart, data wear, data mesh, data fabric, because I think at this point, all these new terms are sort of sw- swimming around people's yeah. heads. Um, I think it will be really helpful to just set the stage and sort of go through what's what. So uh, what I'm going to do is kind of go through the different terms that you mentioned, like you mentioned data warehouse and data marts and all these other things. Uh, and these are very simplistic illustrations, but, uh, and what really what they're, they're doing is they're depicting and, and they're very simple. So there's a lot more nuances and complexities than is shown here. Uh, but if you look at the idea of a data warehouse, uh, so here you have uh, Matesh and he's using uh, four applications and those four applications need to somehow share data. So they're going to build integrations, APIs, ETLs, et cetera, either at the data layer or at the application layer uh, to do something so that the apps can work in an operational context. So those red lines are building integrations, uh, but you can't do uh, a report off of uh, the consolidation of that data because it's not consolidated anywhere. Therefore, you create a, a warehouse, which is basically a copy of data from your operational systems that's organized in a format that lends itself to reporting and analytics. And uh, this is oversimplifying it because it's just showing, you know, a single box for the warehouse, uh, but there's top down versus bottom up and different strategies where uh, you're creating the combination of warehouses versus data marts, which are more business line specific. Uh, and uh, do you do the mart first and then roll it up into the warehouse or do you do the warehouse first and then turn that into the marts? Uh, but what it's doing is it's enabling reporting and analytics off of a copy of data uh, that is deduped and cleansed and organized in theory, where it's copied from the syst- these systems. But if I add a new application, I have to build more integrations here and I have to build more integrations here. Uh, and who the heck's going to own this data model for the entire enterprise as it grows in, in scale? But the, the key thing here is that what it doesn't do is eliminate integration, right? So DataWare is the, the core concept is the elimination of integration with an access not copies model. Uh, so I'm still doing integrations here. I'm still doing integrations here. So data warehouse doesn't solve the integration problem. It enables analytics, uh, but uh, data virtualization is kind of doing the same thing. But instead of physically copying the data, it's a virtual view, although it may do caching. But it's the same concept. I'm still doing app-to-app integrations. Uh, my reports are now using this virtual layer, which has mappings to transform data uh, uh, models from and structures and representations from the way this app re- represents it to the way that you want it to be represented to reports, but it's still the same concept and doesn't eliminate integration. Uh, master data management, 
is really a byproduct of the fact that you know you may have customer data in the yellow app, the red app, and the green app. You've got John Smith, Johnny Smith, and Mr. Smith. Are they the same person? Who knows? Uh, you do data mastering to determine that you basically create a fourth copy, uh, which has rules to determine which of those is the real one. And is it one or are those three different people? Uh, and uh, again, it doesn't eliminate integration. So you're still going to do app-to-app integrations. You're going to do app-to-your-MDM solution, and you still have to solve for analytics. Uh, data lakes are essentially recognizing that the organization and curation of that data is very hard. Uh, so you need to take copies in raw form, knowing that storage is cheap and you can organize the data later. Uh, so I'm going to basically dump it in a raw location and I'll figure out what to do with it later, uh, knowing that there's you know advancements in, in uh, mechanisms to interpret and understand this raw data. Uh, but I'm kind of kicking the can down the road a little bit because ultimately I can't use it until I organize it. Uh, hence the introduction of the, the lake house, which is let's reintroduce the warehouse with a twist, though, instead of sourcing the warehouse direct from the applications, let's source it from the raw data. So take the raw data from the apps and then organize that and then build your reports and analytics and AI and ML off, off the back of that. And uh, a data mesh, which is one of the hottest topics, and I'm a big fan of this concept. Uh, and really what it is, although it's centered on the analytical plane, is the idea of taking domain-driven design borrowed from software architecture and applying it to data architecture, where you're managing data as a product within domains, and those domains serve as governance boundaries. So what it's great at is enabling federation and autonomy and business alignment of your analytical plane. But it doesn't really change how you build the applications, and it doesn't eliminate integration. Right? That's not what it's trying to solve for. Uh, so it's not like any of these things are failing. They're just not trying to solve the integration problem. Uh, and a data fabric is trying to simplify integration, uh, but it's not trying to eliminate it. Uh, so the idea of a data fabric is conceptually think of it as uh, kind of working how your Wi-Fi network works in your home. If you get a new device and you bring it into your home, uh, you don't have to wire it up to every other device that's in your home. You do one thing, you connect it to your network. Uh, so it's applying a network-based architecture to simplify uh, the, the integration. So, But then you can look at microservices and APIs, and again, it doesn't eliminate integration. So all of these things are uh, each solving individual problems, uh, and they work if you implement it correctly, and they all have their pros and cons. But what none of them do is eliminate data integration. Wow, this is awesome. So it's it's almost as if you knew I was going to ask this question, which is a completely off-the-cuff question I wanted to ask. Thank you so much for explaining this to everybody. Uh, we do have some follow-up questions. Here's one from Travis. He's He's asking, is DataWare this big hyperlinked database? It's not a database. Uh, it's a data network, but you can think of it as a network of databases that are linked. So as an example, like I'm, I'm looking at our data network. So you're seeing all of our uh, information uh, and it's all interconnected. You can see the different nodes. So there's employees as an example. And if I zoom out, I can see all the connections that it has. But this doesn't mean that all the data is in a single location. It could be geographically distributed. It could be organized into domains. So if I open up the little left navigator, you can see all the different domains that we have here. Uh, so as an example, if I look at uh, employees, you can see there's the employees data set, uh, but it's actually in a domain called employee success, uh, which is what some companies may call human resources. But that domain, you know, there's all of our HR data. Uh, and uh, separately, I can look at, uh, let's say, our marketing data or our sales data. And uh, this is for, for our company, meaning other companies are going to have a different model. They're going to have different data products they're gonna have different domains. They're going to organize it differently. And even we change our mind over time. But there's all of our marketing data. Uh, so you can see, you know, there's all the marketing data that has links to each other, but it also has links to all these other domains. 
And hopefully wow. that's visible, but it also has links to all the HR data, right? Wherever you see a purple line or yellow line. Uh, and if I grab any data from any domain, you're going to see the same phenomena. Like there's all of our product data. So like the capabilities wow. and, and whatnot. And similarly, if I just grab that and move that, you're going to see the same phenomena. So uh, what you're seeing, though, is a universal interface that uh, treats data like a network, just like how Google Maps is a representation of the Earth that allows you to search and, and zoom in and infinite scroll. And you can even go from the uh, satellite view. So think of this as the satellite view. But yeah. maybe you want to go into the street view, right? So I just want to go into the data where I can then see, change it, ask any questions of it. Uh, and here I can see our, our employees in, as an example. But this data may be coming from different sources. It could be sourced externally, internally from multiple applications. It could be originated inside of Dataware. Uh, it could be distributed across many servers. Uh, it could be distributed across many regions. Uh, the universal interface, it doesn't mean that it's all in one physical location for the same reason that the World Wide Web as that connected layer of documents doesn't mean there's only one web server. Right. I, first of all, I think this is super cool. And I love how you're sharing with us how you're actually using this at Cinchi with Cinchi Data. My question to you is, who else is using Dataware? And are there specific maybe industries or sectors that are better suited for using Dataware at this point? Yeah, so when we started... We were selling into, uh, this goes back uh, approaching four years now since we've been in the market, but we were much smaller uh, four years ago uh, than we are today. But we started with uh, financial services, partly just because that was my background. So, you know, many of our customers are some of the biggest banks in the world and, and they're using it for uh, like literally dozens of different use cases. And, uh, but since then, we've expanded into other sectors and, and also into mid-size organizations and even small uh, organizations. Uh, one of the things that was important to me, because I, I worked at companies that had, you know, 350,000 employees and had been in business for hundreds of years and had tens of thousands of legacy systems and uh, had billions of dollars in technology spend every year and tens of thousands of programmers, you know, lots of complexity. And having a technology that can work in that environment to basically untangle that complexity, but also making it work so if you had a two-person company, you could use it. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's important. So like uh, this, this network uh, view that you're seeing here, this is the present. This is the company of today. But if I go, if I just rewind... Uh, let's go back to the day that we started, right? This was the beginning of our journey when we had two people. This oh, is wow. the day we installed the platform and uh, it's empty with the one exception being it has the meta model. So the the origin of the universe is a single table called tables. Uh, mm -hmm. The first row of data in that is itself. And, and then it does the big bang, which is the creation of this meta model. Uh, but then as I go forward through time, we started to build our business. And so we're a two person company and, you know, we're thinking about hiring some people. So we've got, you know, we're opening up jobs and I uh, see how employees here is a lot smaller than it is in the present. Uh, and it was called Cinchi employees instead of just employees. But if I go back in between, I went too far ahead, actually, you can see it actually started with there was our HR system and it was an isolated data set called employees when we had the two. So it wow. started off as almost like an experiment. And, you know, some experiments fail. It's like uh, natural selection. But, uh, you know, this node found some friends. It's a social network, right? It got connected. Yeah. Uh, whereas other ones may have just died off. Uh, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, as it goes forward through time, it gets even more popular. So, you know, look at employees now. He's got lots of friends. He's getting bigger and <laughs> more confident. Uh, and, and you can see even today, it's still one of the larger objects, right? And uh, now it's just called employees instead of essentially employees. The scheme is evolving. So okay. what this means, though, is it could be small companies, it could be massive companies. What they all do, though, is they start with the 
same starting position. Right. Uh, the only question is, do you have a legacy around this? Uh, and if you if you do, well, you're not going to replace all of that. Uh, you're going to use this as you implement new projects and connect the data as you go, as you deliver those projects. But if you don't and you're a net new company, well, uh, you don't have the legacy. So as you're building your capabilities, you're going to do the same thing. So your journey is very similar for a two-person mm-hmm. company or a 300,000-person company. Yeah, and I love how the employees, I think, towards the, in, in the now, it looks like it's the sun in the, in the middle of the whole universe, <laughs> and it's yellow. It's like, yes, yes. I love that. But well, it, it's interesting, because, uh, and, and this visualization uh, that you're seeing, that comes with it. But uh, I you would think that organizations would be customer-centric, but uh, you have a lot more links to your employee data than you have to your customer data. Uh, right. But one of the things I've realized is, when we start to look at our, our customers and looking at the shape of their network, it's like a work of art. Like ours looks like this, and I, I can't show you uh, what our customers' ones look like, but right. they all are beautiful, uh, distinct. It is truly like a snowflake where each one is unique. But uh, yeah, for us, employees is very large. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, But uh, this view that you're seeing here, it's determining the size based on the connectivity of data. But uh, like I could show you just really quickly. I'm yeah. going to do... Uh, I'm gonna, you can customize that. Uh, so I'm going to open up an alternate one that I just created this morning, which basically takes the company employees and renders it with the same kind of uh, visual experience. So there you can see there's me. Uh, and it uh, looks like I'm, I'm bigger because I've configured the mass to be based on the total headcount. Okay. Uh, and then you can okay. see the basically all the uh, uh, my direct reports and then when, when they have direct reports and when they have direct reports uh, and you can see all the different people uh, on the left uh, but then I can slice it by different dimensions so maybe I want to look by the different teams so there's the marketing team there's our product dev team here's our product management team here's our sales team wow. uh, so there's all the sales people there and but uh, maybe I want to do that by role and look at developers or maybe I want to look at it by personality uh, mm-hmm. so we do personality profiling so uh, here's the uh, the captains. Uh, so it looks like, you know, our captains seem to be concentrated in our sales team. And uh, let's look at our architect personalities and, and uh, influencer like you. So with being able to visualize it in, in really in any dimension where you're configuring what, you know, what are the nodes, what are the edges, uh, what determines the mass and, and with mass comes the gravitational pull. And this is just one example of being able to build a visual experience on top of data, when data is not siloed, it opens up all these really cool possibilities. And whether I want to look at an org chart like this, and, and by the way, I can just you know click on somebody and then click on open, and then it will bring me to the record. It will go again to the street view uh, of the data. And here it's going to show me and uh, a 360 view of me as an employee. Oh, nice. Yeah, there's there's my personality profile, and there's my uh, my temperament, and my communication style, and my career goals, and and open tasks, and out of office events, and everything. Oh, wow. Uh, and I can do the same with anyone here. But again, I created this in in, in probably about fifteen minutes mm-hmm. uh, because the data was already there. That's always the hard part, right? Visualizing is easy, uh, except for the fact that the data is everywhere; it's nowhere. <laughs> and, uh, but <laughs> maybe true. I don't want to look at it this way. Maybe I want to look at it in a completely different skin. Uh, so maybe I want to look at it uh, in an, an org chart. Uh, so let's look at it in a different, completely different skin. So here's the same information, but in a different layout. But it's the same information, right? So the information is not copied. It's not duplicated. It's just rendered differently. So mm-hmm. picture a world of connected data where every individual only has access to what they have access to as determined by the owner of that. Uh, and the ability to build experiences on top of that, uh, wow. where those experiences can be freely shared but without releasing the data because the yes. data is at the 
the controls are at the data layer, right? So it opens up a level of innovation in terms of creating visual experiences because they're not constrained by these artificial things we call silos. Yes, and speaking of that, we we have a few questions about the data environment here. So I'm gonna take the questions from George. The uh, first question was, would Cinchi allow somebody to keep track of all the changes in the data environment? Sort of a follow-up question was that stuff that you were just showing us, is that brought in from multiple data sources? It is, yeah. So keeping track. So let me show you an example. So I'm going to go into a connected system. Uh, so I've connected Salesforce to our environment. We don't actually use it, uh, but I'll just use it for demo purposes because it's plugged in. So I'm going to create a new record inside of Salesforce. So this is just vanilla Salesforce, just the standard org model. And I'm going to say this is uh, whatever a demo user. I'm just going to create a fake contact here. And I'll say this person is a CEO at uh, ABC Inc., uh, and I'll say their email address is uh, whatever, blah, 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 at blah, 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 dot com. Uh, and, uh, yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I'll say that they work at or they live at um, I don't know, one main street uh, in NY. And that's good enough. So I'm going to save that record. So I've created a record in a, in a system, which is inherently a silo until okay. you do integration. But now I'm going to go in and I'm going to make a, a couple of changes to it. So I'm going to change the, uh, let's say, the last name. I'm going to add a number two to it. And the title, I'm going to change it from CEO to CTO. Uh, and then I'm going to make uh, another change here and, and save that. Okay, okay, so now that I've done that, uh, let's go here. And uh, we've connected that already uh, into the environment. So I'm going to go to a, an object called people. So this is modeled differently because in Salesforce, it's called contacts. And it right. has its own schema and its own model. Uh, but today we call it people. Uh, at one point in the past, we didn't call it people. We called it something else. But and so we can change the the model over time, of course, uh, just like how your brain reorganizes itself, uh, which is a prerequisite for you to actually learn. But if I go into this data set, you can see this is a small data set. It just has 35,000 records in it. But there you can see the record that I just created, demo user 2. And mm -hmm. the title is CTO. And while that record came from Salesforce and it can pop into different skins, uh, you can see it side by side with these records, which came from HubSpot. Right. Uh, and if I scroll down, you'll see this record was actually created within Cinchi itself. Because mm -hmm. if you have access, you can just right click, insert and add a new row. And notice that, uh, you know, some of these fields are read only, some of them are editable. Uh, uh, so even though this came from, from Salesforce, I can edit this field here, this field called tags. Uh, so yeah. I can make changes here so I can extend it. So I've connected it from Salesforce, but also from HubSpot. And I think uh, there's like four or five other systems that are connected into this unified view of, of a person uh, where uh, people can be things like employees or partners or customers or prospects and so on and so forth. They're all just people. And I can open up the different experiences regardless of where the data originated from. So here I can see the data that was entered into Salesforce, but I can also see the tags that I entered as user managed data. And if you remember, I put in the address of one main street but right. wait a minute, where is this coming from? One Main Street, Brooklyn, New York, 11201. I never typed that in. Uh, so uh, now to the other question, which is, uh, well, can it track changes to the data? Mm -hmm. If I go to the actual record and highlight it and go to the collaboration log, okay. uh, because what you're seeing is the result of data collaboration, uh, you can see that, hold on, I only made one insert and then one update in Salesforce. And then if you remember, I made one change uh, through this interface, which is what we call the data browser, uh, right. where I added the tags, but there's been six revisions to this record. Uh, so you can see it was added in Salesforce, Feb 15th at 11.32, uh, I'm in Eastern time. And uh, you can see I typed in demo user and I put CEO. 
Uh, and then uh, uh, one second later, it was enriched by HubSpot. I think it probably just put a HubSpot ID. So what it did is it synced it from uh, Salesforce to uh, to the platform, and then from there pushed it out to HubSpot just to keep it all in sync. But then I made a change inside of Salesforce. If you remember, I changed demo user. I added the number two to it. Right. You can see it's tracking the history of those changes. Uh, and if I also change the CEO, uh, I change that to CTO and I can roll it back. I can revert. Uh, but then uh, um, maybe 18 seconds later, Google came in and it took the address because I just typed in one main street and why, and it turned it into a, an intelligent address and basically did address resolution against that. Uh, then I won't go through all this, but then you can see that there's another system that made some more changes. And then wow. there's me, the sole human involved here, uh, yeah. where I added the tags, right? So you're seeing humans, uh, APIs, services on the internet, uh, legacy systems, all collaborating on data, where it's now blending that in a unified uh, representation of that and then linking it to all the other objects, which are exactly the same, right? Wow. To create a universal interface to that. But then if I go back into Salesforce, because again, if you if you have existing systems, you can't replace them all. Right. Uh, but what if you could connect them and make them smarter? Uh, so when I look at Salesforce now, if you remember, all I typed in was demo user two and CTO. Uh, yeah. But now I can see I can get to a person 360 view from here and oh, wow. we'll open up the, that record. And I can see that the smart address is now brought into into Salesforce. So from, you know, if I were just on Salesforce mobile app and I type in their address of, you know, one main street and why, if I yeah. were to uh, change that and it now fixes the address for me, that seems super smart, but there yeah. is no super intelligence here. You know, yeah. Salesforce doesn't have this, this intelligence and, and quite frankly, no individual app can. It's mm. when you start to link things together, people and systems collaborating on data. Uh, that is what's called collaborative intelligence. And that is like, that's how real intelligence works. Uh, that's how the fact that, you know, everyone who's uh, participating in the session probably knows, at least in theory, how to make a fire, but none of us were born with that knowledge. It's collaboration where we retain our autonomy, we can collaborate amongst uh, ourselves um, across the world, even if we speak different languages, we can even collaborate with our ancestors. <laughs> and, you know, we can pass skills down through generations, you know, that's, that's the real uh, equivalent of intelligence. So that's what we're, we're talking about here is when you start to link things together while respecting the control over data, a lot of things change. Yeah. So I went I, way too long on that. But. No, no, I actually love it. And, you know, here, Ravi just said, I learned dataware today. So thank you. I think people are, are starting to, to really get it. So I, I appreciate you going deeper into this. Can you connect every system? You mentioned it's more efficient when you start linking things together. And we saw this with Salesforce. Yeah. What are the capabilities? Is there a limit onto how many systems we can link together or what type of systems? Yeah, you can only do seven systems and then no, I'm not. I'm not <laughs> uh, Magic no, number. So, Magic number, yes. Yeah, you'll never need more than seven systems. Uh, uh, no, so there's no hard limit uh, to it. That being said, it's not just about connecting everything for the sake of it. It is you yeah. connect as you go, right? So I've seen so many you know, technology uh, that get people get so excited about where Businesses will create budgets to center around the use of a new technology, and they never deliver the ROI. So I think it's critically important that people think of these type of technologies as how to enable them to get to where they want to get to, not to get to a different destination, but to get to where they want to get to in a better, faster, cheaper way. And so what that means, though, is if you apply that, that approach, you're not connecting everything all in one shot. There's no project to connect it. You're delivering the projects that you're going to deliver anyways, and whatever you would have bought, built, or integrated software by applying dataware 
it means that you're paying it forward because if you needed to connect Salesforce for project one, well, now Salesforce is on the network. It's like it's it's connected to your Wi-Fi network. When you get a new device, you can just uh, airplay to it. You don't have to reconnect it. It's just there, right? It's it's on the right. network. And if your next project needs to connect Workday or or maybe you need to extend your CRM and add new data, new capabilities, and you want to build that as autonomous data inside of data where natively, uh, well, you can do that. But every project uh, pays it forward uh, yeah. to begin that, that journey. And uh, so... For us, as an example, uh, like I'll show you just a just a slide that summarizes where we are now. Again, we're not our customers. Everyone's story is 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 different, but um, we run our entire company on DataWare, DataWare alone. That being said, we have 106 integrations with the outside world, but we have zero integrations inside of the company uh, because we don't do app-to-app integrations because we yeah. use DataWare. But we still have to get data for, I don't know, like currency rates and uh, country codes. And you know there's a bunch of different sources that we need to, to connect in where we want to connect once uh, and not do integration with every app that needs it. We want to basically enable that data for collaboration. Uh, and uh, if we had to recreate what we have today, but we were not allowed to use Dataware, we would have to build 2,685 integrations, but we never had to build those integrations. So, wow. and quite frankly, we wouldn't have been able to afford that. So what we would be, what would we have done? <laughs> we would have accepted the fact that we have silos. Yeah, this is a great solution. And um I wanted to quickly go back to the example of, I think you called it demo user two or whatever you named that fake character. When you create that, is there a way that Cinchi or Dataware checks to see if this already exists somewhere in the system so we don't create duplicates? The the sort of follow-up for that from George was what happens when there's a conflict, a conflict in data between two, uh, two or more systems? Yeah. So the short answer is yes, but uh, the principles there are very similar to if you're already familiar with MDM solutions, it's not fundamentally different. Okay. Uh, so you're going to have, you know, signatures to determine uniqueness, and it could be as simple as a key, or it could be, you know, do these things sound similar and, and being able to define rules. And you can do that in either multiple stages where you're pulling in the data and then separately doing the mastering. Or you can do it such that it's mastered before it even enters uh, Dataware. And by the way, for Dataware, like Cinchi is a Dataware platform, but you could build your own Dataware platform. You, there's others that are uh, that are um, uh, have similar feature sets. You can assemble a Dataware platform. It's not like there's only one way to do it. The, the concept of Dataware is a universal thing. So let's say you're building your own Dataware platform. Uh, you can do so and you can leverage an MDM tool to be able to do that. But that's not anything new or unique. Uh, mm-hmm. But what I'll also say is that's a byproduct of the fact that we have this legacy where data was siloed. Meaning in the future, you're going to have a lot less of that because you're not having each application create data separately where you have John Smith, Johnny Smith, and Mr. Smith in yeah. three different systems. Are they the same person? Who knows? Well, uh, why was the data segregated in the first place? It never should have been. Yeah, Absolutely. I think we have a new slogan for for Cinchi here from Scott. When your data is everywhere, <laughs> you need dataware. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Earlier on, and I, I didn't ask the question before, but someone asked the question of what does Cinchi stand for? I think I already know what it is, but I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, so uh, I guess I can interpret that question two ways. Uh, so what we stand for is access, not copies. No, uh, but what it means is it's playing the word cinch, which means simple. So uh, it's it's really just a, a pun on uh, the simplification because we like to like for me I, I I hate when things are 
actually, I like when things are complicated because I like to simplify them. That's my yeah. one of my my things. And people who uh, work at, at our company are similar in that they they like to eat the complexity so that others don't have to. So uh, since she means simple, which is uh, where it's originated from. Although when we settled on the name, I didn't realize that if you Googled Sinchi back in the earlier days, if you go back four years, it w- you would have seen a lot of pictures of horses. Oh. Because Sinchi is also a term for a horse that is agitated because its cinch is tied too tightly. I had no idea. So we toyed oh. uh, I actually wanted the logo of an angry horse, uh, <laughs> but um, others didn't like that. So we, we just went with the dots. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of logos, well, this is not really your logo, but uh, there's a question from Ravid about your cool profile picture. And does that have anything to do with, with data where I'm assuming that's your LinkedIn picture and this is it right there, right? That's the. Yes. Yes. So we have this thing in the company. Um, uh, if I go back to our slides, like we use this when we're talking to prospects and customers and things like that. But if I go through this deck that kind of covers some of the concepts, yeah, you'll notice that there's a bunch of characters here, but these are not fake people. These are real people. Like there's, that's Michael and his name is also Michael and that's Juliet and that's Max and uh, they work at Sinchi and uh, there's Chris and uh, Caitlin and there's uh, Sylvie uh, who's on our board and there's Ron who runs sales and uh, there's uh, Tyson who runs partnerships and uh, Ali who's a a BDR and Fatima who runs uh, training. And uh, so we, we did this thing where we started to get, uh, avatars rendered with an artist uh, for every initially just employees, but then we extended it. Uh, there's Neil. He's he's a customer. Uh, he was a CEO COO at one of our uh, larger customers, and that's Priya. She's a CIO at one of our more recent customers, and that's Trevor, who's a, a partner, and that's Kevin, who's an investor. Uh, yeah. So we started to do that for uh, our customers and uh, our partners as well, and uh, uh, it gets people like it actually. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. And thank, thank you again for giving me one of those. I think that was super <laughs> cool. So thank you. All right. So Dan, we're, we're getting closer to the end of our conversation, but for, for those listening that are fully bought in, right? Dataware is the way forward. They're on board. What can they do today to sort of get started on their journey towards Dataware? Yeah. So uh, First of all, for anyone who's learning about it for the first time, if you're already bought into it, there's probably something wrong with you. <laughs> uh, because uh, you should be more skeptical because there's a lot of BS in the world. Uh, so you should uh, definitely do some more diligence before <laughs> before uh, diving in. Uh, and if you go to our, our site at sensi.com, there's lots of information, lots of videos and stuff like that. But uh, again, be skeptical with it uh, and look at other technologies, consider building your own, like look at it all. And, uh, to me, uh, getting people to buy into the concept is the win, not necessarily selling the software because this concept I think is, is, has, has, you know, we're talking about something as big as the invention of software. Uh, if we, if we play our cards right here, this is not like a little tiny shift. It's a big deal, but let's assume that you've done the diligence and you're either building your own or you're buying a commercially available one and you're now going at, where do you actually start? Uh, well, the, the key, and I touched on this earlier, uh, but just to, to reemphasize that is, uh, so if your current reality is you've got like an app for everything and a database for every app and you have all these integrations, uh, you're not going to go and just delete all that. You may have 10 systems, 100 systems, 1,000 systems, maybe 10,000 systems. You're not going to replace all that. Uh, so if the future vision is that there's an app for everything and a data store for no app, uh, it's a collaboration platform, kind of like mm-hmm. Google Drive, but for data, 
then the question on where to get started is really whenever you're going to be buying, building, and integrating software. So if you're not going to buy anything, if you're not going to build anything, you don't need to integrate anything, don't use Dataware. But if you are going to do that, then you can apply Dataware and get that pay-it-forward phenomena. Uh, so the, the whole idea, and this is where people who have heard of data fabric and data mesh and all these things may find it interesting, but uh, I see Dataware very much as a unified approach because uh, you need the idea of a data fabric to connect data in and out and bidirectionally, real-time batch, end of day, end of month, real-time data streaming, you know, depending on what you're connecting it to, uh, such that you're not connecting every system to each other. They're each separately connected to Dataware once and once alone. That's the idea of the data fabric, right? It simplifies integration because that's still integration. It's what we call last copy integration. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the ability to build new applications that don't need a database, uh, they can store data as autonomous data, meaning app independent data inside of a dataware platform on its own. Uh, and being able to have visualization tools like a Tableau or Clicker, Power BI and, and AI, et cetera, all, all use access to data, not copies of data such that the controls can be defined in the data layer itself so that they're universally enforced. So regardless if I'm you know, accessing the data through here, 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 or here, if I can't see the salary of my peer, I can't see the salary of my peer no matter where I am. And then being able to then unify the experience of that where it's dynamically generating end user experiences using metadata, which is what you were seeing earlier when I was showing the, the data browser, that visual experience. Yeah. Um, and uh, the problem with that is as, it, as you start to grow, let's say you have some short-term success because you're going to start small. You're going to start in a team. You're going to start in an application. You're going to start somewhere. You can't start everywhere. But as you start, if you get that success and you start to replicate that success and it starts to grow, your next problem will be, well, how do you govern in that scale? Because who the heck's going to own that model? You need yeah. to decentralize and distribute that and federate it. And, and how do you define the, the accountability boundaries there? Uh, well, you want that to be aligned to the business. So that's where the concept of the data mesh comes in, uh, which is creating, uh, basically managing data as a product, organizing it into domains. Uh, and those domains can be in a hierarchy and they basically are governance boundaries. Uh, and, but then individual data sets need the controls and the metadata to be contained within it to enable this universal access. So in many ways, Dataware is the combination of these concepts. So these are all just co- uh, concepts. Uh, mm-hmm. Dataware itself is also a concept, right? And you can build a platform, you can buy a platform that implements that concept. But if you take the elements of data fabric uh, for in- integration simplification, the idea of data centricity, for those of you who follow Dave McComb and uh, read some of his books, and the idea of, se- of that separation, the creation of, of a universal experience, the web browser, but for the web of connected data. Uh, the idea of the data mesh for uh, decentralized uh, governance, uh, and the idea of autonomous data such that the controls can be universally enforced. This plus this plus this plus this equals dataware. Great math math equation. I love it. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. And uh, the questions keep coming. Hopefully, you uh, you or someone from the team will have some time to sort of jump in on, on LinkedIn and address more more questions. And as we wrap up, uh, you mentioned something earlier in the session called the DCA, the Data Collaboration Alliance. So just want to give yeah. you a chance to to tell the audience about that and how they can participate. Yeah. So if you go to datacollaboration.org, uh, you can learn a lot about uh, the efforts uh, that we are doing to create standards and there are projects that we are executing. So it's all based on the idea of access, not copies. And, you know, the, the whole principle is that, uh, being able to own data is irrelevant if you can't actually have control over over data. Uh, So it's the enablement of of control, but you can sign up, you can get access to a pilot environment. Uh, uh, We've started uh, a project uh, called uh, Node Zero that is creating uh, connected data sets uh, that started in the data privacy community 
but is now expanding into other sectors and other other regions. Uh, you can read about our our standards efforts, uh, specifically with zero copy integration as our first standard, but that won't be the last standard. And mm-hmm. quite frankly, you can join up and and, and contribute and participate. Uh, this isn't about Cinchi. It may have been started, but it's what we're doing is we're pulling together people who care about uh, enabling a future where people can have control over their data. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the absence of that, just look at what's happening in the world today with misinformation. And, you know, a lot of that can be tied to the fact that you can't trust data. Right. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing this. I think it's very helpful as well. Uh, the last question I always like to ask the guests of the Dedicated Show is where can people go to continue the conversation or if they had more questions? Uh, I know you mentioned some sites like Cinchi.com and datacollaboration.com. Org, Org yep. yes, yep. Yep. Um, but where can they find you? Is it Twitter, LinkedIn? What's your preference? Uh, LinkedIn, probably. Uh, but uh, if you actually do go to Cinchi.com, uh, you can see a little button there that says, uh, what does it say? Ask, what is <laughs> Let me actually go to it. I forget what it says. Uh, but you could just ask any questions and I will actually personally see the questions, but the team will answer that as well. Is oh, it? ask us anything. Uh, I was so going to say, you this, could ask me anything. Okay, close enough. Yeah, yeah there it is. <laughs> So feel free to just ask me anything, either video or chat or anything, or hit me up on LinkedIn. Okay, awesome. Well, Dan, I want to thank you very, very much for your time here today. I personally learned a lot. I keep hearing the terms, you know, data fabric, data mesh, data, data wear now, this this new term that apparently adds up everything else. So I think it's very helpful for, for me, very helpful for the audience to get a bit of uh, education on the topic and I want to thank you for answering all the questions that we threw your way. I really appreciate your sharing your time with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. It was fun. Awesome. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining the session. Uh, We'll see you all online. And hopefully, if you have not signed up for the Dedicated Conference yet, go ahead to dedicated.com slash conference. Sign up. You will see Sinchi and Dan there again. Uh, So hopefully, uh, you know, we'll see you there. And I'm really looking forward to that. Thank you so much for listening to the Dedicated On Air podcast. We really hope you'll come back for more episodes. And until then, stay dedicated.